James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under, con, uh, under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. The Apostle James is continuing his <clears throat> exhortation to the people. He has a very strong word on sin and judgment, even in this last chapter. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, he warns the rich who exploit the poor. The rich who exploit the poor. Not all the rich exploit the poor, but there are some who are rich who exploit the poor. And he warns them of the last day and the treasure, meaning 
the full amount of their sins that will be held to account because they have exploited the poor, the oppressed, and the downtrodden. They have, in fact, verse 5, prepared themselves for a day of slaughter, most likely indicating that as pigs are naturally fat, fat pigs are prepared for a day of slaughter. And if they behave like this, they are like the pigs who deserve to be slaughtered at, in due time. This is a judgment against them. They, in verse 6, condemn the righteous, but God will condemn them for mistreatment of the righteous. In verses 7 to 8, he exhorts us to be patient, patient like a farmer, patient for the coming of the Lord. And if we are impatient, then there is sin. In verse 9, he reminds us that we should not be complaining against one another. Like he did in chapter 4, he does it again here in chapter 5, verse 9, not to complain, meaning a sinful complaint against one another. And why so? Because otherwise we might face the judgment of God. Verse 9, he says the judge is standing right at the door. In verses 10 and 11, he exhorts us to be one of endurance, to be people of endurance in the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of our temptations, in the midst of our suffering, to be patient and depend and wait for the Lord. He uses a particular example, the example of Job and the prophets. Verse 12, swearing falsely. Swearing false oaths is a sin. Making a vow, a solemn promise, swearing in the name of the Lord and not fulfilling what you have vowed or sworn to the Lord, before the Lord, to others, this will bring about judgment, he says in verse 12, so that you may not fall under judgment. 13 to 15, prayers to be offered and the elders of the church to be called. This kind of prayer in faith, which means that if it's a prayer that lacks faith, the Lord will not honor that. And in verse 15, he mentions sins. The sickness in view here, it may be because of sins, because he says, if he has committed sins that caused the sickness, they will be forgiven him, and the man will be healed. Not all sicknesses are, res are a result of sin. <clears throat> For example, Job in verse 11. Job had physical illness. He had that, but not because of his sins. Only because God was testing him and teaching him endurance through it. <clears throat> then verse 16, confessing our sins to one another. When we have sinned against each other, then the, the sinner, the guilty party, should seek for forgiveness from the innocent party, and then the innocent party should forgive the guilty party. That's the way he means it in verse 16. Then an exhortation to faithful, enduring prayer in verses 16 to 18. 
the effective prayer of a righteous man. Not a wicked man, but a righteous man. And the example is Elijah the prophet. He prayed that rain would be withheld against his own people, against his own countrymen. And God honored it because he was a righteous man. He honored it for three and a half years. Then Elijah prayed for rain to come, and then rain did come because of his righteousness, not because of his wickedness. But God honored the righteous man in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, his own contemporaries. Then lastly, in relation to sin and judgment, we have 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, there will be people who stray from the truth. But one has to turn him back. That is, one has to appeal to the other. One has to confront the other. One has to rebuke or reprove the other to turn him back. And this, in verse 20, he says, let him know. The one who is appealing to the sinner. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Sin produces death. When repentance is forthcoming, then his soul is saved from death. And a multitude of sins is covered. He won't experience the judgment of death, but he will receive forgiveness of sins. The whole chapter encompasses many things related to sin and judgment. Before we proceed more carefully in the beginning of the chapter, why is this subject so important? The subject is so important to note that the New Testament actually describes much about sin and much about judgment. It's important because most people ignore it. Most people are willfully ignorant of these verses, of the statements, the exhortations, the warnings from God related to sin and judgment. They think when they read the New Testament, it's only expressing love and grace, compassion, mercy, kindness. And then they distort those virtues and apply those virtues in very wicked ways. They don't apply those virtues of love, peace, kindness, grace in the right way, the way the Bible explains. We cannot, for example, accuse James of being unloving, unkind, ungracious. We cannot. If we were to do it, then we would be accusing James the Apostle, who was inspired by the Spirit, we would be accusing him and accusing God of being a sinner, an unrepentant sinner. If James' way of confronting sin and warning us of judgment is the wrong way, it has to be the sinful way, the evil way, if it is the wrong way. And therefore, our way would be the righteous way, the gracious way, the loving way. But that's not the case. The case is James is correct, James is right, and we are wrong. We by nature, unless the Spirit lives in us and and unless we are being conformed to the Word of Christ, whatever comes from the carnal man, the old man, 
is wicked, is sinful, is evil, and deserves the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Death, eternal death. How many, though, will actually consider this? The moment they hear that whatever they have believed all their life is wrong, they are up in arms. They are outraged. And they will lash out more against the people who preach the truth about this, lash out more against the preachers of the truth than they will lash out against a murderer, against a thief, against an adulterer, against a corrupt politician who embezzles and steals the money of the people. They will lash out more on this matter than those crimes that happen every day. And it shows who they really are. It shows that they are false brethren, that they are unbelievers. They claim to be Christians, but they're not Christians because they have no desire for righteousness, no desire for holiness, no desire for the word of righteousness, to understand the Bible as it actually is. And then to conform their values, conform their mind to the mind of Christ. That's what should happen, but they don't want that. They ignore the Bible, distort the Bible, and stay willfully ignorant of the Bible. And then we wonder, why are the churches the way they are? Why is our culture the way it is? That's because nobody in the pulpit is preaching repentance for forgiveness of sins. The moment we do so, we are accused of being Pharisees, judgmental, self-righteous, legalistic, works righteousness, works salvation, when actually they are the ones who are devoid of the Spirit, devoid of the Word of Christ. They are completely clueless and heretical in their understanding of the Bible even the New Testament, even the book of James. Yes, they will sometimes cite the book of James here or there, but not in context. Not in context, they will not. That's why we must draw our attention to the seriousness of this subject, because it is so neglected, and if it is neglected, then how can people be saved? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Well, if the Word of Christ says things like we just read in James 5, then why don't people know these things? They're not hearing the Word of Christ. They're hearing the words of men, the wisdom of men, which will not save. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. The word of God is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, not the word of men. That's why we must know, we must study, we must read, we must meditate, we must memorize, we must share, we must use the word of God to handle all of the issues of life. The way we look at life should be through the lens of Scripture on everything that comes up. The Bible is our sufficient, adequate, 
means to be equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Keeping that in mind and the necessity of this kind of study, let's now turn our attention back to James 5, verse 1. Verses 1 to 6, he is rebuking, he's confronting the sins of the sinfully rich. And we have to say sinfully rich because of what he's saying they do. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David and Solomon. Kings Hezekiah and Josiah. They were rich, but they were not sinfully rich. Not that they were perfect, but they were not behaving like this unrepentantly. They were rich yet righteous. In this case, these are the sinfully rich. And what do they do? Or what is the appeal? Come now. You rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He calls on them to weep and howl like he did to everyone in chapter 4, verse 9. 4, 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. He means what? He means there should be sorrow, contrition, heartache, pangs of the heart that convict them of their sins. That's what should be happening. And if it won't happen now, it's going to happen later. Because he says, for your miseries which are coming upon you. The rich man in Luke 16, he was in Hades. He was in agony. And he lifted up his eyes in torment. He was being afflicted with these miseries in Hades. This is what he means. There is judgment to come if we don't weep and howl now, if we don't become miserable, mourn and weep now in repentance. It's going to happen later and God's going to impose it upon us on the day of judgment forever. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Riches, clothing, gold and silver, they don't last forever. They need to be maintained And if they're not maintained, then these kinds of degenerate things will happen. Rottenness, moth-eaten, rust. This will happen when they're not cared for. But even if they are cared for, clothes don't last forever. And if they don't understand the temporary nature of these earthly possessions... Well, what's going to happen? They will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. He means that the Lord on the day of judgment will bring to their awareness. How did your riches help you prepare for this day? 
How did your garments help you to prepare for this day? Did your gold and silver help you prepare for this day? No. You refused to believe in the blood of Christ for your forgiveness of sins. So all of these things that you could have and should have used for the kingdom of God, you use for your own kingdom, your petty kingdom on earth, and they're of no value. You exploited people with these possessions instead of helping people. Instead of being generous, you hoarded and exploited people. On the day of judgment, there will be a fire. He's saying, in the last days. By last days, the last days started at the first coming of Christ during His incarnation. And the last days end upon the second coming of Christ. And now, upon the second coming is the day of judgment, the resurrection of the dead, between the first and the second comings. So in the last days, when the Lord actually does return, he's speaking of the end of the last days, you have stored up your treasure for that time. At that time, and it will not help you. It will not help you. There is an exclamation at the end of that sentence in verse 3. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. He is scoffing at them. He's mocking them. You've stored up all this, but none of this will be of value when you meet the Lord on the day of judgment. He's not going to say, well, how much money do you have? I need some of that. And then if you give me some of it, you will escape the judgment of God. No, it doesn't work like that. God is God. He doesn't need our money, our clothes, nothing. He doesn't need anything from us. Verse 4. Behold, a specific example of their crime against God and man. Verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting, has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. They had mowers in the field, but they didn't pay. Likely, the agreement was, I'll pay you at the end of the day. I'll pay you at the end of the week. I'll pay you. And then payday comes and goes. And the people don't have what was promised to them, what was according to the contract. And when it's withheld like that, when a delay occurs, God says that he's going to, he says, the pay of the laborers, he says, cries out against you. Because on the day of judgment, God keeps a record. And he will render to every man according to his deeds. Just like he's going to tell the rich about their riches and their clothes, Right here, he's going to also say, this money, this money is going to testify against you on the day of judgment. If we may say, if we may say in terms of illustration, it's as though God's saying, I'm going to make this money cry out against you and testify against you on the day of judgment. Like God is able to make stones cry out if he wanted. In the same way here, he's going to make the money say, the I, the money, I was supposed to be in the hands of the mowers, but you kept it in your own pocket, in your own bank account, and you didn't pay them. They will cry out. And the laborers. 
The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. They prayed. They said to God, Lord, deliver us. This man, he is he is ruthless. He doesn't care for us. He told us he would pay us, and now we are unable, unable to pay for our housing, pay for our food, pay for our clothing, our family's needs. We have no way of going from place to place. We need to go. So they pray like this and ask the Lord, and the Lord hears, he says. This is the problem. We think because God does not answer immediately, and sometimes he does not answer favorably in this life, we think God did not hear. But if we have faith, we believe God does hear because He, the Lord, does not settle all accounts in this world. He will certainly settle them in the world to come. That's why He's called the Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth is taken from the Old Testament and it means the Lord of armies. In this case, it's in the plural. The Lord of armies. God has angelic armies and other armies that he will use to inflict the judgment that is deserved. Sabaoth equals armies. And that will be a frightening day when a mass of his troops are militating against us on the day of judgment. What have they done? Verse 5. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. They lived luxuriously without helping others. They led a life of wanton pleasure. Joy or pleasure in and of itself for the basics of not life, the necessities of life, enjoying what you eat, enjoying what you drink, enjoying quietness and peace at home, enjoying your family, enjoying being married, enjoying having children, enjoying having friends, enjoying your work. These basic enjoyments have their place. But he's not talking about the basic enjoyments of life. He's talking about wanton pleasure. He's talking about excessive pleasure. That's what he's saying. And just like a hog is fattened, There is no useful hog that is scrawny, right? The same thing with the cow and some animals. There is no use for them when they are scrawny and gone. But when they are fat, there's a use. Well, here, because these are unbelievers, he's saying, you have prepared yourself for a day of slaughter. A day is coming when the fat pig will be slaughtered. And the pig in the Bible is a symbol of sin an unclean animal, and a symbol of sin. So that's what will happen on that day of judgment. You're fat now, but you've become fat now because of that one day when you're going to be slaughtered. You're enjoying it now, but you won't enjoy it forever. You're going to be slaughtered. Eternal death. Verse 6, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. The righteous man often does not have the power. And sometimes the righteous are told to turn the other cheek. The righteous are are told, why not rather be wronged? 
Why not rather be defrauded? So the righteous at times doesn't resist. But they, the rich and the powerful, condemn and put to death the righteous man. They will be held accountable for it. And this death is likely a literal death. That's the way it reads here in James 5, verse 6. Just as he spoke against murder in James 2, James chapter 2, verse 11. James 2, 11. He's preached against murder. And we have in 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse 15, 1 Peter 4, 15. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. Why would the apostles James and Peter speak like this? Because there are many people who think one can be a Christian and a murderer, a Christian and a thief a Christian and an adulterer, a Christian and an idolater. They try to put these kinds of sins and whatever other sins, Christian drunkard, they try to put these kinds of sins together when they, that cannot be. Nor even a Christian liar. All liars are thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 21.8. There is no sin that we can join with the honorable name Christian, which comes from the word Christ. There is no way. That's the point James is making, that people in the church might think you can be a Christian, a rich, sinful, luxurious, exploitative Christian who puts others to death and go to heaven. That happens today. It happens through the millennia, people think from the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and since the days of the New Testament, people think you can be an unrepentant liar, an unrepentant murderer, an unrepentant adulterer, or any other sin, and still be a Christian and go to heaven, because we're all saved by grace anyways. No, the grace of God was meant to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously and sensibly and godly in the present age. Titus 2, 11 to 15 teaches, the grace of God instructs us not to continue in sin, but to overcome sin by that grace. Verse 7, 7 and 8. This exhortation actually to patience goes from 7 to 11, which would mean if we are impatient, that would be sinful. It cannot be ascribed or relegated to, well, that's my personality. That's how I was raised. I, don't, I didn't know any better. Or it's his fault. You can't do that. It has to be patience and if there's no patience, then there must be repentance. Verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. How long? Until the coming of the Lord. Not one day, or a hundred days, or a thousand, or ten years. 
be patient until the coming of the Lord. If we grow impatient, then we are sinning. And the illustration is the farmer. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. The major rains in the land of Israel happen twice a year, and that's the way it usually happens in a lot of other places too. Twice a year. The farmer, he has to till, he needs to work hard, but he also needs to rely upon the rain and be patient and wait for the crop to grow, to bear fruit. And then at the right time, he goes into the field to harvest. If the farmer does it for food that will be for his stomach, why can the believer not do it with food that lasts for eternity? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, Jesus said. Let's do the same. Verse 8, you to be patient. Farmers can be patient. We should be patient because we have something better. Farming is necessary, but it's simply an illustration of something that people do in this temporary world. But in the world to come, we need to have strengthened Hearts for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We need to have strong hearts, not feeble hearts, not weak hearts, not hearts that are easily demoralized, not hearts that are easily upset or impatient, but hearts that endure. They need to be strengthened. How would they be strengthened? By the word, by the word read, by the word heard by the word shared with one another. It is the word that will remind us that we should not be double-minded and unstable in all our ways. James 1, 8. We should not be double-minded, but be fixed and firm and stable in our patience with a strong heart. 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This complaining against one another is likely the way he meant it in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. 4.11 Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? This complaint, he means that which is unjustifiable. And what are the typical ways? Slander and hypocrisy. Slander saying something that's false about another that harms that person's reputation, harms his character. Saying something false about another, whether you say it to him directly or say it to him indirectly through somebody else, you're still speaking against him and it's still slander. And also hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, complaining about somebody else's sin of a certain kind 
when you yourself are practicing the same sin. Don't complain like that. Be patient with one another and help one another. And if we're not being patient and helping one another, he says that we'll be judged. God will judge us, punish us. And the judge is standing right at the door. This same judge is the coming of the Lord, verse 8, which is at hand, near. The same in verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. The Lord's coming, the Lord's coming is at hand, and the judge is standing right at the door. It's going to happen soon, sooner than we think, especially if we die and meet the Lord. If we die sooner than we think and meet the Lord, He's right there and He's going to judge us. Then, in contrast, verses 10 to 18 though they are not paragraphed that way, verses 10 to 18, in contrast, are giving illustrations of those who were patient, those who did endure afflictions, those who did live righteously and anticipate the favor of God and the return of Christ. In verse 10, he mentions the prophets. That is the whole group of the prophets, the righteous prophets, not false prophets, but true prophets, Verse 11, one such prophet, Job. And then in verses 16 to 18, Elijah the prophet. And then meantime, we who undergo afflictions and need patience in verses 13 to 16. So patience illustrated in the prophets, Job, Elijah, and then all of us. And then we might ask, why is verse 12 there? Verse 12 is there because often in times of affliction, people make rash vows. They'll say, Lord, if you just do this, then I will do thus and so. And then the Lord answers favorably, but then we don't do thus and so. We have broken a promise. And that is a sin that deserves judgment. Okay, so verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They were examples of suffering and patience. We know especially prophets like Elijah, Elisha, Job, Jeremiah. They were hated constantly by the people and even the authorities the king of the land the king of Israel in the case of Elijah and Elisha the various kings of the northern kingdom Israel they hated these prophets they sought to put them to death to silence them but did Elijah and Elisha did Jeremiah did they give up did they say enough of this I'm not going to do this anymore I'm going to find a hole in the wall. I'm going to find a remote cave and I'm not going to come out again. I'm not going to say anything more, do anything more. They didn't do that. Even Job never cursed God as Satan said Job would if the Lord heaped afflictions on Job. 
Job never ended up cursing God. That's why Job is an example. All the prophets are, but Job is in verse 11. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. For a period of time, Job had many, many afflictions. Actually, first he had much abundance. He was very wealthy also. He was righteous. He was generous. He was helpful to people. He lived an upright life. But a time came when God wanted to test Job. And that's when God sent Satan to afflict Job. He lost his children. He lost houses. He lost his cattle, his herds. He lost his health for a period of time. And during that period of time, Job was tested in many ways by the reactions of the people around him. His own wife had the wrong reaction. His own uh, slaves or servants, slaves and servants, had the wrong reaction. The young people used to respect him, but then now they were mocking him. They were mistreating him. And his friends, his friends kept accusing him, his three friends kept accusing him again and again. What is your secret sin, Job? Repent of your secret sin. There, there is some sin that caused all this. When God made it plain in chapters 1 and 2, there was no sin. There was no sin. The Lord was simply testing Job and proving that Satan is wrong, God is right, and God's elect will endure, which he did. And then at the end of the test, period of test, after being confronted by God, he repents, Job repents of whatever doubts he had in that period, and then God restores him. He has more children. He lives to be a long, uh, an, an old man for a long period of time, for 140 years after he was restored and had many possessions restored. That's what he means by the Lord's dealings. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. He will sometimes do it in this life, but he doesn't always do it. Sometimes the prophets are put to death. At other times, they are spared, like in this case. <clears throat> Verse 12, a warning when we are in afflictions to watch our words, to watch our words. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Our Lord said similar words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And it's important to note that when the Lord said it in Matthew 5, and James is saying it here, it, their statements read like there is no, absolute no occasion to swearing an oath, to making a vow before God. But that's not what they mean. They're using this kind of expression, this absolute expression in a, a hyperbole, an exaggerated form to make the point absolutely clear, we better watch what we say. But they do not mean you cannot swear at all. Because Jesus actually did swear. 
he swore before the high priest. Now, swearing in the Bible is not meaning here, this passage and these other passages, is not marrying, uh, meaning using cuss words. We're not talking about cuss words in our context. We're talking about swearing an oath in the name of the Lord that you will say or will do whatever comes out of your mouth. And the example of Jesus, even though in Matthew 5, Jesus spoke like James in James 5.12, here in Matthew 26, Matthew 26, 63, we read the following. Matthew 23, uh, 26, 63. 26, 63 to 64. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When the high priest adjures Christ, to adjure, to adjure means to put another under oath. To put another under oath. He says, I adjure you. The high priest put Jesus under oath, and then Jesus answered under oath. If it was a sin to be under oath, Jesus would not have answered. But he did answer in verse 64. But James' point is, when we are afflicted, when we have troubles, it's easy for wrong words to come out of our mouth and for us to start making false promises. Don't make these false promises. Don't swear at all. But make your yes be yes and your no, no. Make the word that comes out of your mouth a faithful word, an honest word, instead of exaggeration by swearing an oath. And then if we do it that way and not fulfill our oath or our vow, we will receive judgment, verse 12 says. Judgment. 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. When we are suffering, we ought to pray. Pray instead of complaining, instead of being involved with different other activities. Pray. When we are cheerful, sing praises. Express the cheerfulness also. Suffering joined with prayer. Cheerfulness joined with singing praises. Is anyone among you sick? A particular kind of suffering, sickness. Call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing with oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to heal. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. 
the prayer offered in faith. Now, he doesn't mean as long as we have faith and apart from the will of God. He's not teaching us to pray in faith apart from the will of God. His revealed will in his word, nor his secret will that he does not disclose to us unless he chooses to disclose it to us. And in case we're wondering if God has a revealed will and a secret will, yes. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. All the words of this law tell us his revealed will. His unrevealed or secret will, mysterious will, he doesn't tell us. He's not telling us what was, is going to happen when we leave this meeting and where, how many cars are going to be on the road. He's not going to tell us that. That's a, his secret will. And whether we're going to see an accident on the road or not. And whether we should help in that accident or not. These kinds of things he doesn't reveal to us. They are a part of his secret will. Remember, he said in 4.15, we should be dependent upon the will of God. 4.15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. We shall live, that's health. Doing this or that, that's wealth. That will be accomplished if the Lord wills. And that's the same here in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. If the Lord wills and we are asking in faith, we shall live. We shall get up from our bed. The Lord will raise us up out of the bed of sickness to health. But sometimes sickness, not always, but sometimes sickness is brought about because of sin, such as this case. He says, if, not because he committed sins, but if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. In Job's case, it wasn't because of his sin. Remember also in 2 Corinthians 12, when the Apostle Paul received a revelation with words that were inexpressible. 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul prayed three times to be healed and the Lord did not heal him because it was not in his will to heal him. But Paul prayed in faith and the problem wasn't that he did not pray in faith and not even the problem wasn't that he sinned. But it says that God sent the affliction, the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 11, or 1 to 11, sent the thorn in the flesh to keep him from exalting himself, to keep him from pride, to keep him humble. Not because pride arose in him, but to make sure no pride arose in him. Sometimes sickness comes not because of our sins. At other times it comes because of our sins, such as James 5, 15. You also remember... In 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 34, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 34, the Corinthians partook of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And it says, some of you 
are weak and sick and a number sleep. God killed some of them and he made others weak and sick because they came to the Lord's table unrepentantly. So when we are aware, what should we do? 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Confess sins, this is assuming that we have sinned against another. He's not saying that every day, all the sins that you have committed, the next time you see a brother, or at regular points, or even the worshiper goes to a priest, the local priest, and the the priest is behind a shade or a barrier, and he cannot see who the worshiper is coming to confess his sins. And the worshiper is supposed to confess to the priest as they do in Roman, in the cult of Roman Catholicism. He's not talking about confessing like that. He's talking about when you have wronged somebody else, then confess to the other and the other should forgive. He means it as Jesus said in Luke 17, Luke 17, verse 3. Luke 17, verse 3, where he says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Luke 17, 3. If he repents, forgive him. So confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Why? Because when we pray, as it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Righteousness and prayer ought to go together. Not wickedness in prayer, but righteousness in prayer. Just like 1 Peter 3, 7 Likewise, you husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessels, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In that specific example, it's the husband sinning against his wife, and when the husband prays in that sin, God will not honor the prayer. The prayer will be hindered. But the righteous man's prayer will be Heard by God. And Elijah's an example. Elijah was one of the few faithful in the land of Israel. He was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Elijah, notably, he's not called in this passage a prophet on purpose. Elijah certainly was a prophet. But he purposely did not mention that point in order to stress a certain point, that he was a man with a nature like ours. We've been saying prophets have been our illustrations here, which is true. However, in order for us to have motivation to pray, he's telling us, listen, it's not just for prophets to get their prayers answered. It's not just for apostles to get their prayers answered. It's also for the rest of the church. It's also for the Christian, the believer, because 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He had a nature like we have. He had the old nature and he had the new nature. So he had to fight the old nature and he had to pray righteously in the same way we must do so. Fight the old man and in righteousness pray and pray earnestly. That's the motivation here. Don't think that God only answers the prayers of the prophets. He will also answer ours because we have the same nature as Elijah. And he prayed for something that was very miraculous, very uh, significant. No rain. But then he prayed for rain. And God answered that too. For three and a half years, no rain. And then the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. He prayed a twofold prayer. He prayed a curse on the wicked people. And he prayed for a blessing on the people. He prayed for a curse. And that that curse on the wicked people also impacted righteous Elijah. Elijah did not have food and enough food and drink. He needed to flee to the land of Sidon, where a widow would provide for him. And here the illustration is presented so that we might learn to pray against the wicked like this and pray for the blessing of God also. Both ways our prayers should be. Then lastly, 19 and 20. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. My brethren, his final appeal. If we see someone in our midst straying from the truth, The motivation here is not for the person's straying. He's not saying, James is not saying, if somebody strays, go take this word to him and tell him what he needs to hear. He's not saying it like that, as though this exhortation here in 19 and 20 is for the person who is straying. No, the exhortation is for the one who sees the straying man. Because he says, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, the one is the righteous, him is the strayer. The righteous who's not straying and the one who's straying is him. One is the righteous man, turns him back, him is the sinner. Verse 20. Why do we say the focus is on the one who is righteous and not sinning and straying? Because it says in 20, let him know. Let who know? Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way. Let him. The him is the righteous man who's not straying. Let him, the righteous man, know that he, the righteous man who turns a sinner from the error of his way, the error of the sinner's way, will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
the main point is the addressee, the main point. The addressee is the righteous man who's not currently straying in sin. He needs to have this kind of exhortation, this kind of motivation to know. Listen, we think, well, we'll just let him go. Well, I just won't say anything. If I say something, it's going to erupt. There's going to be an explosion. There's a volcano is going to erupt. So I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. I'll just let it go. That would be a sinful attitude. Because he's saying to us, our motivation should be, listen, if you turn him back, you will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Don't you care about his soul? Don't you care that his sins be forgiven? If you do care for his soul, if you do love him, if you're going to show him grace, then you need to tell him he's living in sin to save his soul from death and cover his sins, his multitude of sins. You, the righteous man, are an agent to help the straying sinner. You're a tool in the hand of God to help the straying sinner. Yes, the straying sinner will benefit, and that's good. That's a part of this passage. But the point is, we need the motivation. We can't say, I don't see it, I don't hear it, I don't know what you're talking about, and then mind our own business and do something else. No, we know, and therefore we must deal with it. We must confront it. To help the straying sinner be saved from death, and to help his sins be covered. Having said this, in our brief study of the book of James, chapters 1 to 5, in our brief series here, think about whether we think this way. Think about whether we believe this way. Think about whether we would speak this way with anybody. Believer or unbeliever alike, brother or false brother alike, would we ever speak the way James speaks? And if not, whenever we do not, are we not sinning? He's not sinning. Even though he's used stern and firm words, he's not sinning. We are the ones in sin because of the fear of man, because we want to please men and not be a bondservant of Christ. We cannot be that way. As James was, Paul, Peter, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, all the prophets and apostles, and even all the righteous saints, like Stephen, he faced his enemies, Acts, Acts chapter 7. Apollos faced his enemies, Acts chapter 18. Timothy was told that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. 2 Timothy 1.7 Therefore Timothy also, a pastor, he is also told, this is the way you should speak. This is what you should believe. This is what you should tell others. Don't hold back. When we hold back, we ourselves are sinning. Let's repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.